this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki As I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 6 One day I went out to Leszczycki and found him in one of those moods that I had heard about but had never witnessed. His face wore a dark look, and he was making no attempt to conceal his feelings. One mustn't be a bit afraid of making enemies, he said. Make them all enemies sometimes. They come back again when they see how little you care. I was surprised to hear him say this, for only a week or two before he had expressed an entirely different view in the presence of several people. He had talked a long time about the efforts one should make to be fair in one's lifetime, and he had used the English word fair. He thought the word very beautiful. By this time I had heard all kinds of rumors and gossip about Leszczycki, but I observed that no two people ever seemed to hold the same opinion of him. He was becoming to me an amazing and almost incomprehensible person. He had a different word and different advice, it seemed, for every pupil. One thing only could be counted upon. His guests and pupils had to be lively and not dull. His speeches after the suppers at the classes were as different in character as his lessons. But let a stupid or dull or easily shocked person show himself, and we all knew what was coming from Leszczycki. There was an eleventh commandment that he spoke of. Thou shalt not be stupid. And upon this text he would often deliver sermons. I had heard stories of his apparent cruelty, but I knew him to be a man so full of tenderness and consideration that I despaired of being able to reconcile these conflicting estimates of him. Much of the gossip had its origin, of course, in jealousy pupils finished at other schools and at conservatories of music generally found their way to Vienna and Leszczycki, and frequently much well-meant advice was vouchsafed by incredulous people who were sure that students could find more sentiment further south, more dignity further north, or more accuracy in Paris, and that Leszczycki himself was impossible. It was a common occurrence during the inevitable conversation that Continentals start while traveling to be asked pointedly if one was studying with that terrible Leszczycki. This comment was only too laughable to anyone who knew him at all, or who understood in the slightest degree the artistic atmosphere of Vienna. It was very unfortunate for the Americans that an important American musical periodical chose to publish a series of articles criticizing Leszczycki's private life. Every American in Vienna looked upon this ill-advised policy with great resentment. 
the Europeans thought we should make a public statement on his behalf. Leshetitsky had just married for the third time and had been twice divorced, something that can hardly be called exclusively European, and anyone seeing Leshetitsky at all as he really was would not be likely to think of him as a trifling and unprincipled person. He himself ignored these attacks at first, but when one day a long, particularly vicious and untrue article reached him, he lost his fortitude and took occasion during a class to express his feelings. He first made account of the Americans present, then asked them to rise and hear his view of the matter. He began by quoting this journal to the effect that his class was made up mostly of Americans who were misguided in coming to him to study the piano. Look around, he said. Look at yourselves. Are you not only a handful in this class of pupils? Are there more Americans here than people from other countries? The majority of my pupils are, I think, proud and happy to be here, even if they have to go through many trials and tribulations under this roof. We can thank heaven that the trials are for art's sake and for nothing less than art. Here you few Americans rank the very poorest of all in art as well as in human understanding, and you spend your time in making private affairs of which you have no knowledge conform to your perfectly artificial code of morals, at least if you feel as your editor feels. But, continued Leshetitsky, looking sadly and wearily away, I have loved some Americans, and some of my real friends are living in America. Madame Helen Hopkirk and Madame Bloomfield Zeisler, for instance, but now, if you feel as your editor feels, I want to tell you few here, go back to the place you came from, for I can do without you. All of you, everyone, he said with emphasis. I do not mind if I do not see one left. This rebuke was, of course, particularly hard to bear for a few of us, and for me especially. I had just begun to feel myself progressing in music, and only the week before, I had had what was called a very good lesson. I was learning to think of Leshetitsky as the best of friends to go to for advice on all subjects. I had had two or three proofs besides of his good offices in connection with certain little troublesome affairs that might have ended in bad feeling and gossip. These things he stamped out as quickly as possible, and the instigators were punished, sometimes all too severely. But no two people seemed to think alike about him. One young man proclaimed himself disgusted with Leshetitsky's idea of music and life altogether, saying he never would listen to him again. You will never be an artist with your creeds and doctrines, Leshetitsky had told him. You are a thousand miles away from expressing your true self in music. You must live you must be lively, be gay, learn to dance. You must get yourself out of your sordid and distorted atmosphere. The father of this youth had written finally to Leshetitsky to say he was sorry his son had ever for a moment come under such bad influence. Another young man continued to fare ill in the class because of the particular kind of conversation that seemed most natural to him 
a kind which Leshetitsky detested. "'You will always be a nobody,' Leshetitsky said, "'if you choose such themes to dwell upon. "'You already have the atmosphere about you "'of coming up the back stairs, "'and by and by the back stairs will be too good for you.' "'He had shown great concern over a young girl in his class "'who had just made the acquaintance of a celebrated singer "'who was about to go to Paris.' The latter had wanted the young woman to go with her for a fortnight to be present at her concert and to meet Massenet and Saint-Saëns. It was alluring, of course, Leschetitsky said, and would be an interesting experience to a little Viennese girl to go with the brilliant artist to Paris, but I am uneasy about it. There is something in the eye of that singer that I don't like, and the young girl has a foolish mother and father. They know nothing of the world. At any rate, said Leschetitsky, I have taken the liberty of telegraphing to Munich to her to come back, that I want her to play at a concert. But they had already left for Paris. At the end of the week the young girl did return, very much disgusted with her disagreeable experience. But the best of it is, said Leschetitsky, the mother and father took me to task for letting her go at all. How can they possibly blame me, for I did not even introduce their daughter to the singer? Now, what can I do with these mothers and fathers? Such things constantly irritated him. Only a short time before, he had had a serious quarrel with the mother of a young man, who was very anxious about leaving her son amid the dreadful pitfalls of Vienna. He will go to cafes if I leave him, said the mother. Most certainly. Leschetitsky replied. But, Professor, he will become fond of the ladies. I only hope so, remarked Leschetitsky. Finally, the poor mother had to leave. Leschetitsky would not hear of her staying. Just before one of my lesson days, his troubles and responsibilities seemed almost too much for him to bear. When the day came, I had no lesson at all. He began by telling me how angry he was at a disagreeable piece of gossip he had heard about me. At a certain point he stopped and said, I see the whole thing. You needn't tell me anything. He abruptly left the house and must have spent several hours in seeing people, for during the next twenty-four I had no less than eleven visitors, all ordered by Leschetitsky to apologize to me for a misstatement. First he had gone to ten of them separately, and had asked if one certain girl had ever said such and such a thing. They had thought it wisest to admit that she had, and tell him the truth. "'Now go and get your leader,' he ordered, "'and hurry as fast as you can spin to apologize, for I never want to see such an expression on any lady's face as I saw upon Miss Newcomb's this afternoon when I told her what you have dared to say.' For the next few months, relations were very strained between the leader, as Leschetitsky had called her, and himself, and I think she must have profited by the experience. It would be amusing to know what the feelings of the other ten were on seeing Leschetitsky at their door in a state of ill-concealed wrath over a remark that I am sure was not maliciously repeated by most of them. 
During those first years in Vienna, I kept schoolgirl-like a diary. And as I look it over, I find surprisingly little in it about music. It is mostly taken up with stories about Vienna. There is an account of parts of a conversation at a dinner table where Leschetizky was present. The friend and companion of a young pupil of Leschetizky's had just returned to Vienna after an absence of three years. During her absence, the young pupil had lived alone. She had undoubtedly had a very hard time when they lived together, for the companion had all sorts of strict ideas about living that were difficult for a young student of music to follow, especially in Vienna. They were Americans. The young student was not on any account allowed to go to the Philharmonic concerts on Sunday. She was to teach a Sunday school class, and was forbidden to speak to Austrian gentlemen, particularly officers. They had come to Vienna to study music, and for nothing else. Nothing must be allowed to interfere. The companion preferred them to pose as poor students, as this was a worthy object in life, and she told everyone of their spending most of their money to come to Europe to study. Money was very important to the companion, who had plenty of it, and anyone who did not respect money for its own sake was incomprehensible. She loved to say, That old crank, Ibsen, says he would be ashamed to have a lot of money, but it only shows what a worthless person he is. The girl wished to take fencing lessons and to ride at the famous Spanish Riding Academy in Vienna but the companion wrote to her father and got him to forbid it. They were in Vienna for one purpose only, and must not spend time or money for foolish, unimportant things. They had their days most rigidly mapped out, without a moment's recreation, or even time to think. Study hours were determined by the companion, and only books on music were allowed in the house. Leschetizky had been greatly amused by these facts, but had been rather inclined to agree with the companion in one or two respects. He expressed the opinion that the companion might now treat her charge a little more respectfully, since she had grown older and had studied to great purpose. Now, wishing to make amends, if possible, for her previous uncongeniality, the young pupil asked her friends to meet her dignified and intellectual companion while she stopped in Vienna. The companion was planning to go round the world alone to study with special designs on Greece and Persia. To please her young friend, Madame von, name unknown, invited Mrs. T and the others to dinner at her house and Leschetizky promised to come. A famous archaeologist and two well-known painters of Vienna were present. Parts of the conversation at this amusing function it was impossible not to hear, as Mrs. T had a very penetrating voice and a very decided way of speaking. Archaeologist. How interesting, Mrs. T, that you are going alone around the world to study. Mrs. T. Thank you very much. But I know perfectly what I want to do and see, and as not everyone feels as I do about these things, I think I'm glad I'm going alone. Yes, I'm sure I'm glad. Archaeologist. 
You American ladies are very strong-minded. Mrs. T. Well, we have to be. There are all kinds of people in this world. The only thing is to be always sure you are right and leave the rest to the good Lord. Archaeologist, after a pause. Are you going to remain long in Vienna? Mrs. T. Not any longer than I can help. You know, I told my young friend's father that I would stop here and see what she was up to. In a stage whisper behind her fan, she thinks Leshetitsky is a great man. Between you and me, I do not. It's curious how many people get that notion into their heads. I think he is a very dangerous person to associate. And you have such stupid customs here in Vienna. This kissing of the hand, for instance. They used to do that when I was here five years ago, but then Europe was somewhat new to me, and I did not mind so much. But to have everyone, why, three different men have kissed my hand since I arrived. Archaeologist. Rather long silence. Of course, Master Leshetitsky is one of your young ward's friends. Mrs. T. Yes, and I don't approve of that friendship. And she would improve more in her music if she had fewer friends and did not think of things outside of her music. Archaeologist. Don't you believe in being a many-sided person? Mrs. T. I dare say what you mean by many-sided person and what I mean are two totally different things. Archaeologist with a smile. Yes, indeed. I am sure they are. I have been digging near Athens for a good many years. If you like, I can get you permits to see things that are otherwise inaccessible to tourists. Mrs. T. No, I thank you. I have come to Europe with a list of the things I must see. You know, in art, one must choose well the things one really wants and stick to them. I do not intend to turn to the right or to the left, but to be able to write a good lecture when I get home on the things most worth seeing in Europe. And do you think, madame, said Leshetitsky across the table, that you can come to Europe and judge so easily which are the only things to stick to? Most certainly, Mr. Leshetitsky. One knows the good from the bad, as well as the right from the wrong. I make it my first duty to always be right. One can always know that if one stops to think. Black and white, said Leshetitsky, no colors. Yes, there are only two ways in this world. One is right and the other is wrong, replied Mrs. T. Leshetitsky, your young artist friend here might think otherwise and know far better. Mrs. T. I have no doubt, Mr. Leshetitsky, that my friend has become so Viennese that her ideas are not those we have in God's country. They have become distorted. A slight pause. Everyone becomes interested in Leshetitsky's face. No, said Leshetitsky, with an expression of determination, but of distinct hilarity on his face. It is quite the contrary, for she has a great amount of that discrimination which is inborn in some people, and which enables her to put a question mark after every thought. Everybody laughed, and the situation was saved. The famous archaeologist now gave up entirely, 
remarking to someone nearby that the lady didn't need him at all, as she had the double stars of Bedeker to go by. While the companion talked complacently to her hostess, Leshetitsky drew his pupil into the next room. "'I was wrong indeed,' said he. "'I thought you had probably been a naughty child five years ago, and could now well afford to make amends. But, my dear child, get as far away from such people as possible. They are not for artists. Such people drag you down. An artist must look up and not down.' If art is worth anything, it is to keep you from becoming sordid and narrow. Get as far away as possible from such people. She will, said one of the painters. Don't worry about her, Herr Leschetitsky. How do you cope with all these duennas and guardians of your pupils? I would not have them come near the place, said another. They only distract the poor struggling students. We all have to struggle, and mustn't be bothered for a moment. Besides, they sap one's vitality. Weren't we polite, though? said another. Didn't we please you? they asked. You see, we Viennese, all the wicked, are nice, polite people, aren't we? Leschetitsky's pupil said she felt wicked, too. No, you don't, said Leschetitsky. You have serious things to think of. "'and I wouldn't feel too much if I were you. "'Never think of that person in your life again.' "'The companion then thought it was time to go home. "'She did not believe in keeping late hours, "'and they said good night, but the others stayed. "'Leshetitsky, the celebrated painters, "'the archaeologist who was giving lectures "'at the university in Vienna at the time, "'stayed until nearly morning.' Madame von, name unknown, went to bed about three o'clock, but the others all stayed until the bell struck six and talked. Leschetitsky talked for three hours on a stretch. He said he had come to the end of his patience with families and guardians and companions of artists. They stood in the way of pupils' development and generally blamed him for all their difficulties, musical or otherwise. If his pupils were sometimes unwise or stupid, he was called to account by the guardians. But the guardians themselves did such unwise and foolish things. It was the rumor in Vienna that one mother gave her little boy prodigy all kinds of strong drinks to stunt his growth. She thought he would attract more attention professionally in this way. He was a tiny boy, only nine, played beautifully, composed, and, Leschetitsky said, could direct a full orchestra any day if he had to do so. He was a genius. Certain it was that they made the poor little thing work like a slave. Leschetitsky was determined to get to the bottom of this rumor. However, he did not believe that it was true. He showed them all the little muscle that sometimes connects too firmly two fingers in the hand and needs long training to develop rightly. One of his pupils found great difficulty in training these two fingers, and the father, who was a doctor, wanted the muscle cut. Leschetitsky forbade it, but the father insisted. Leschetitsky then refused to teach the girl any longer, but the family visited him continually to talk the matter over. They made it very disagreeable for him, 
telling him he was obstinate and wanted nothing but his own way. The conversation then turned to principles and morals. All five gentlemen expressed themselves freely. Two or three times they apologized before the ladies, but they all talked for an hour or so, and finally Leshetitsky laughed. "'Go on, go on,' he said. "'Please go on. I wish you had for one day in your lifetime, any one of you, the responsibilities that I have. Oh, it is wonderful to hear you.' And he would laugh again. He was sorry that his wife was not able to be there. She would have enjoyed this conversation. He spoke very beautifully of his wife, Eugenie, in that talk of his, and one realized how well she must understand him, and how sympathetic and helpful she must be. There is another story in my diary about a mother who always accompanied her daughter to the lessons. I am afraid, she said, that he will say something that my daughter ought not to hear. Often she coughed or interrupted and showed agitation when he began to criticize her playing, or when she expected him to say something shocking. The girl was not untalented, and Leshetitsky gave her frequent lessons. After three or four, he decided upon his course. By that time he knew the pupil and the mother better. "'Why are you here?' he asked. "'Does your daughter want you?' "'She needs me,' said the mother. "'I think not,' said Leshetitsky. "'She has had you over her too long already. "'I do not approve of you. "'I have observed you for some time. "'You have not even had the sense to bring up your daughter properly. "'She enters the room ahead of you. "'She interrupts your conversation. "'I am perfectly sure that you quarrel when you are alone.' And do you not write back to America and say that your daughter is a favorite pupil? No, indeed, protested the mother. Well, here is a paper, he said, producing an American newspaper and showing her one of her own published letters. Oh, these mothers and fathers, said Leshetitsky. They drive me insane. I don't mean only the American parents. They are peculiar, smiling in that they always appear to be so glad to get away from their husbands. In Europe, the husbands come along too, and I generally have the fathers as well to attend to. To think of all these husbands left for so long in America, a whole ocean between them and their wives, and the American girls don't seem any too respectful toward their mothers. Perhaps it only seems so. There's another here that will have to go. She's English. She's very intelligent, but, oh, so easily shocked. Everything is shocking her. She makes you want to say shocking things. However, Leshetitsky easily changed his mind, and at the last class of that year, this dear mother was present and was invited to stay with her daughter to supper. She had perhaps been forgotten or forgiven. There was an unusual number of guests. The playing of the evening had satisfied him, and Leshetitsky was in one of his gayest and most genial moods. "'Just don't let me think too much,' he said. "'I feel happier when I can keep myself from thinking. "'I am not the happiest man in the world,' he said, looking serious for a moment. "'And when I look at you, young people, I think so much of the difference in our years.' 
but if I do not think too much, I can be happy. On seeing the stately and thoughtful mother halfway down the table, his mind took a different turn from what we expected. He first asked Schutt, in a strange whisper, to tell his neighbor to behave more properly, pleased to put his hands in his lap where they belonged instead of on the table, and then, in hard, peremptory tones, he called us all to order in a way that puzzled us as to whether he meant it seriously or not. His face took on a most terrible expression, and rising at the table, standing stiffly as he never stood before, he delivered a lecture with a monotony of voice never before heard from Leshetitsky. One guest was laughing a little too much. Leshetitsky suddenly became the irritated schoolmaster. He brought his fist down on the table and scolded. Then, to our astonishment, he began in the grandest style to talk about the church. This amazed and interested the mother, who undoubtedly began to realize that there was some unusual cause for merriment. She very tactfully began a spirited and serious conversation with Leshetitsky, which surprised and delighted him. He put aside at once his pompous style of speaking and turned to simplicity and plainness. His guest surprised everyone by her ability to talk with Leshetitsky, and in the end we found ourselves listening with greatest interest to a long conversation about religion. On leaving, the mother expressed herself as charmed with Leshetitsky's hospitality, his frankness and freedom, but, above all, with his ideas on religion and the church. "'Your master knows everything,' she said. I had no idea he was so well informed on subjects outside of music. That mother is an intelligent mother and sympathetic also, said Leshetitsky afterward. I had no idea she was as artistic as her conversation showed her to be. Chapter 7 The one last year in Vienna to which my parents had agreed lengthened into two, and at the end of the second season I said a very sad and final good-bye to Leshetitsky. This would really be the end of my study in Vienna, I believed, and I was desolate at the thought. Meanwhile, my sister, who had made excellent progress in her singing, decided to remain, and it was comforting to leave her in Vienna as hostage for a possible return. Leshetitsky had greatly encouraged her in her studies. She and a little band of friends stood mournfully on the station platform, saying good-bye to me, repeating their invectives against parents who did not encourage their children to become artists. On my way to Bremen, across the ocean, I had ample time to meditate upon these things, and I am happy to say that by the time I saw my father's dear face at the piers, I had come to a better understanding of the sacrifices which parents, on their part, were called upon to make. At the steamer, my drooping spirits were revived a little by a beautiful letter from Leshetitsky, in which he said he hoped very much that it would be possible for me to come back, and if I did, I might play as often for him as I liked, but there would be no more real lessons. 
no paying for lessons. This I cherished as an argument I might one day use with effect upon my father. Leshetitsky had also written some touching and serious things about parents, and his words taught me to realize the difference between those who deliberately hindered the artistic development of their children and those whose motive for keeping them at home was only affection and love. "'You must show your parents that now you can do something well,' wrote Leshetitsky. "'If you play well, I judge from what you tell me that they will know it. "'If your coming back is a question of money, "'you can tell your father from me that you are able to earn money yourself.' I understand such parents as yours, he went on, and such relationships as yours are. No one in the world ever had a more devoted mother than I had, and no one ever loved his mother as much as I. One time when she was very ill, I had a concert that would take me from her for many days. My friend said that I should not leave her, but she was the one who made me go away to carry on my career. She died during those days, and I never saw her again. You will see that if you are serious in your music, your parents may become your best friends. And so I came home, and played often for anyone who cared to hear me, also a few times in public. During that year I was happy to receive many letters from Leshetitsky, and to hear also that he hoped I would return before long. He liked occasionally to have an American newspaper sent him, but took far too seriously the great headlines, telling of damage done by lightning, the great floods we had, the terrible heat and fires. Often several pages of his letters would be taken up with expressions of commiseration for the intense heat that was reported in America. "'Do not go near New York,' he wrote." but stay quietly in the country and keep yourself rested for your studies in this hot weather. He had a romantic feeling for the sea and would write how he tried to imagine the highest waves. No picture could give any idea of the sensations one would have on passing another steamer in mid-ocean. He wondered if it did not take real courage to put one's feet on the gangplank and separate oneself so entirely from the land. Some years before this, the little town of Whitney Point, New York, where we lived, had been nearly destroyed by fire. Leshetitsky never forgot the time in Altenmarkt when I received a newspaper with an account of the disaster. Very shortly a letter came, saying that the fire had not extended as far as was reported, and that our old house was still standing. His disgust for the exaggerations in the newspapers was most amusing. In the meantime, my mother had gone to Vienna to join my sister, and Leshetitsky wrote to me a great deal about Mary's singing. This is one of his letters. Dear Ethel, at last, at last I am able to write about your sister Mary. I have heard her twice during the past week, once in her apartment in the presence of her teacher, and last Wednesday in the class, when her mother was present, something which you probably have heard of already. Well, it took no little trouble to get Mary to sing, particularly in the class. 
I can say now that since last year she has made great progress, particularly in regard to technique. For example, she often sings difficult coloratura passages most excellently, and in her high register she has, for the most part, a brilliant attack, even in piano. Also, little turns and embellishments come out quite deliciously. Furthermore, the spirit is not lacking, so that she sang Rossini's aria from The Barber of Seville, Una voce poco fa, in the class, with great success, in fact. On the other hand, the Traviata aria, which has more dramatic content, was not so good. In my opinion, her weakness lies in the fact that her voice in the high register is sometimes, indeed often, somewhat sharp and thin, and that the lower register is not cultivated enough, so that she seldom brings forth the so-called dark tones, and her execution is lacking in portamento. I like her lower tones especially, more than the high ones, and I think it would be good if Fräulein Mutter would have her sing more legato things, in addition to those with technical difficulties, something that I already hinted to Fräulein Mutter. In regard to technique, the trill must be improved, as it is not on the level with other technical accomplishments. As I always have it in mind that you could give joint recitals with Mary, she should cultivate the lyric element more and develop greater warmth of expression. And to this end, naturally, the voice itself must be made warmer. I am of the opinion that this is possible, and I hope that Fräulein Mutter will follow this course more. Now you know pretty much all that I think about Mary's singing. Well, I am curious as to what further decisions will be made in regard to Mary. Her mother wants to take her to Italy. That is all right, but Mary must, in any case, not interrupt for too long a time her instruction, which as a whole is being conducted very well. I hope that this will not happen. Now I will tell you something about myself. In about fourteen or sixteen days, I will leave here, that is, about the 14th of June, and therefore I will give up my work with the students in about a week. My liver gives me considerable trouble again, and first of all I must have rest, and it is high time that I go to Karlsbad. After three or four weeks of the cure in Karlsbad, I shall go to Ischel for about two months, and then perhaps, yes, probably, to Paris, when I have become completely rested. In Paris I want to stay three or four weeks, and then go to Wiesbaden for eight or ten days, or perhaps first to Wiesbaden, and then to Paris. Your successes in your own country have given me the greatest pleasure, as you can well imagine. Meanwhile, I hope for early news of you, and remain your true old friend, Theodore Leschetitsky. In another... Now, about your sister. From a letter which I received from her, I take it she has had some disappointment. But the cause she has not told me. I have only heard about that from you. Frankly, I am not sorry that it has turned out this way. If Mary fulfills that of which she gives promise, perhaps it is the best thing that could have happened. Sorrow and suffering, if they are really deeply felt, are factors which often form the greatest inspiration in art. She is young and beautiful, and will forget. 
I would wish that the American flirt, which is cultivated over there in your country entirely too much, will not prove the cause of her forgetting, but rather that it will be art instead. In about two weeks I shall see her again. I hope she will be frank and truthful with me as I shall be with her, and on my side I will not let her lack for encouragement. In any case, I do not think it would be well for her mother to be with her in Vienna. Mothers and fathers are usually in the way in the artistic development of young people, even though they are artists themselves, something which is not the case with your parents. I must add that I find your mother, who, as you know, spent the evening with us after the class, a very charming and sympathetic person. I am heartily sorry that I was not able to talk with her, because I am such a stupid fellow, throttle, in English. And when I wrote to my adored master that I could probably not return, I received the following from him. Art is a grateful friend. The more you dedicate yourself to it, the truer it is to you. Do not allow yourself to lead an empty life. You have promised me that you will remain true to art under all circumstances. Keep your word and try to grow more and more in art. You will not always have a bed of roses to lie upon, and then you will sometimes think of me. Amen. When I was most despairing of going to Europe, one of my aunts came to my rescue by offering to take me back to Vienna as her guest. My father then resigned himself to the sad conviction, as he expressed it, that we were never going to be with him again for long. He would not even go to the steamer to say goodbye, declaring that he would go to those piers only when we came home again. It pleased Leschetitsky immensely to have old pupils return, and this time, when I reached Vienna, he greeted me with warmest words, adding that, after all, the Americans were serious people. We were not all of us living just for the dollars. In spite of his satisfaction, he told me he could hardly understand how I had the heart to leave my parents. One day, however, he brought me a slip of paper with a quotation from Grillpatzer. Where your work is, there also should your home be. Soon after we had settled in Vienna for the season, he and Madame Leschetitska sent out invitations for a large reception in honor of Professor Leopold Auer, who was one of his old friends and had come to Vienna to visit him. My aunt, my sister, and I went. When supper time came, Leschetitsky took his guest of honor to a smaller room upstairs, where he could have less formal conversation with him than was possible downstairs among the many guests. He invited Miss Evelyn Seward, Mark Homburg, my sister, and me to join them. We were already seated at the table when it occurred to me that we had been sadly neglectful of my aunt, who had been left downstairs among guests to whom she probably had not been introduced. Leschetitsky realized that we had been rude and, when I started down to her, he followed me, remorseful and apologetic. But we were very properly rebuked by her before Leschetitsky for our neglect. Always antagonistic toward aunts and mothers, and guardians in general, 
Leshetitsky did not receive this with good grace at all. I remember asking him if we could not get Eduard Schutt to take my aunt to supper, but Leshetitsky objected. No, no, Schutt is not to be used for such purposes, and probably he has selected someone himself anyway. So we went back to the others and tried to forget our troubles. Some weeks later, Leshetitsky wanted to know whether the relations between my aunt and myself had improved, and I had to admit that I was still embarrassed and miserable before her. Instead of the sympathy that I expected, he displayed a frank delight in my situation. It was high time, he said, for me to become independent. Your parents are making great sacrifices for you and your sister. She is going to Paris to study with Marchese, and will have to use a great deal of money in Paris. There is no reason why you should not earn your own living. You do not have to live in big hotels, in fashionable places, encumbered by people to whom you are indebted. I have told you for two or three years that you could teach, and now, thank goodness, the time has come when you ought to do it. Every pianist should have pupils. People forget the artists who have only played, but pupils carry on the teacher's memory. I shall be giving you something that will last you your whole lifetime. Now tomorrow I will send you six pupils and announce in the class that you are to be my assistant. This was the greatest surprise to me, and I was open-mouthed with astonishment. I cannot do it, I said, but Leshetitsky reassured me. I had never done any teaching, and was frightened at the prospect of undertaking it. The next day I did, however, receive four pupils, who must have had confidence enough in Leshetitsky to overlook my unprofessional attitude. My sister listened behind the door to every word I said, and now and then a giggle escaped her. This came to Leshetitsky's ears. He quickly came to our apartment and decided that my sister and I should be separated by a corridor. Our dogs were to be kept in the farthest room, or my sister could take them out for a walk while I was engaged in giving lessons. Meanwhile, Leshetitsky had made arrangements with Frau Bray, Fräulein Wallahansen, and Fräulein Prentner, who had been my teacher, for me to go to them and listen to at least one of their lessons. It was most valuable experience to observe their various ways of explaining his principles, and very useful in supplementing my lack of training as a teacher. Before long I had plunged into teaching in earnest, and had pupils, as did all the assistants, from every country in the world. My first pupil was the director of a conservatory in Germany, an excellent theorist, without much knowledge of the art of piano playing. He wrote many austere compositions, and, in fact, did everything but play the piano well. His tone was hard and matter-of-fact, but he learned three or four pieces and several Czerny etudes in so short a time that I could very soon send him out to Leshetitsky for a lesson. It did not occur to me to go with him. Afterward, Leshetitsky told me he was excellently prepared but I should never have known just what happened at his lesson if two other pupils had not been present. From them I learned that Leshetitsky stood up after my pupil had finished and said, Now I want to tell all of you here who has prepared this gentleman. 
and ask if you do not think Miss Newcomb has pedagogical talent. So far, Leshetitsky had not announced in the class that I was to be his assistant, probably because he wished first to test my capabilities. This announcement was received with mixed feelings. One American mother, whose daughter had studied with him for several years, expressed herself as very skeptical of my qualifications. She had the tactlessness to inquire of Leshetitsky why her daughter could not be appointed assistant. If I could, to which Leshetitsky sarcastically replied that she would have to ask someone else. His three experienced assistants, however, were most kind and encouraging to me, and said it was very good and essential to have an American assistant among them. Frau Bray paid me the great compliment of saying she envied me the advantages I had as a teacher in having prepared myself to play in public. And I had still another lesson to learn from Leshetitsky. The first money which I earned by teaching, I used to give a little supper party for him. My sister and I invited him one evening, and when he came, we set out a most delicious little supper, which we had ordered in from Sasher's. Leshetitsky was in the habit of going to supper late in the evening, either after concerts or after his long walks. He loved to stroll about in the evening and amuse himself and meet his friends in the different cafes of Vienna. But about ten or eleven o'clock he was always ready for a little supper. My surprise met with little success. I told him I had just earned some money and wanted to spend it on him. He looked at me thoughtfully, shook his head, and finally remonstrated, This is not good at all. The first money you earned should have gone into the bank for serious purposes. How valuable it would be for you, he continued, to know what it is to be compelled to earn all the money you ever have. There are many things you would become more interested in. Supposing you had to make the dress you are wearing, how careful you would be to learn not to waste any material. And so he went on, to our amazement, taking the affair of our little supper very seriously. It was very hard really to please Leshetitsky. He now found fault with me for not being more professional, but I discovered, as time went on, that it was from kindness of heart and dread of the time when I might cease to enjoy myself as much as I had so far in the slight experience of teaching that I had found such a pleasure. You must not think, he said, that because you have had two or three agreeable and appreciative pupils that they will all be that way. They have liked you personally, too, he said, but you will soon enough have some who will criticize you and your teaching, and then you will know what it is to give out your best energy in a long lesson that has not contained one pleasurable moment.' 